let's start with a prayer. Let's, uh, let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you for the gift of your word, the testimony that it carries, the promises that you keep, that you have made and kept to us all. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the faithfulness of Paul and those letters which he has written to the church and the account of his life, a redeemed sinner who you used and who continued to live in your grace and boldly shared it with others. So, Lord, uh, continue to uh, strengthen our faith as we are on this journey with St. Paul. We ask it in your name. Amen. Okay, so I want to do a couple of interesting things. Go to 1 Corinthians. So in your, in your Bibles, obviously, there, the three letters are located together. So we have Romans first. So you go Acts, right? So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, those are those gospel accounts, the narratives of Jesus' life. Then Acts is really Luke part 2. Right, so Luke part 1, the story of the life of Christ. Luke part 2 is the Acts of the Apostles. That's what we're in, so we're using that as our guidebook. We've been in chapter 19, so we're getting to it. We're getting there. Um, oh, brief aside, tell your friends, because I want to build this group up again. I want, us to, I want us to get more people in this group again, so I, I think I need to talk about topics that really are pertinent to people's lives. I'm going to take the truth and love ministry materials uh, in sharing with your LDS neighbors and building relationships. That's the material I'm going to use. So I'm hoping that strikes a note with people, the biblical basis, the pattern and technique that we use, uh, and how to show love to your neighbors so that we might have an opportunity when God opens that door to be able to, to share, um, share the gospel. So I'm going to do that, that after this is done. So I'm, sh I'm shooting for being done with this at Easter, and then once we're done, right after Easter, we'll launch that and do that. So it's been neat, Leslie. Your dad's been texting me. He keeps texting me stuff from his movie. I keep telling him, just move back. We could have a real conversation. Um, so Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. So 1 Corinthians comes first, 2 Corinthians, and then the book of Romans. So 1 Corinthians... What I want is for you to have this handout, right? So it's in the back there. This handout, the other side of it has a map on it. This one on 1 Corinthians. And then the other handout has 2 Corinthians, and then on the back side has Romans. So it isn't that we can do an in-depth study of each of these books, but I want to show you in the course of Paul's life and ministry why these are significant. So again, in the context... From 1 Corinthians, that's where we're at, and you can go in your Bible to 1 Corinthians. I don't, we will look around at various verses here and there um, and, and, um, and show you what the significance is. But the occasion of 1 Corinthians is that Paul is in Ephesus. He, we believe he's near. He's on the third missionary journey. And remember, he spends close to three years, not quite, 27 months is our best estimate, 27 months in the city of Ephesus. So, again, on the if we show you a, a really simple map, if this is Greece and this is Corinth, right, Macedonia, and then you get this, right, and then you're over here. This is Egypt, and then here again, of course, is Holy Land. And Jerusalem... Just let me put this up here again. Antioch, remember? What was Antioch again? Who remembers? Missionary, missionary headquarters of the church. And this is Tarsus, Paul's hometown. 
This is Ephesus over here. Ephesus. Okay? And so up here you have Philippi and Macedonia and Berea, those kinds. So on the third missionary journey, right, so Caesarea. And so Paul journeys this way and then lands in Ephesus. So then, um, so this one he writes about 55 AD towards the end. Now what's interesting is, if you are a student of these letters, you, there are all kinds of hints that there are more letters. Are you familiar with this? So this is what, something that I find interesting. So there is a letter that precedes 1 uh, Corinthians. And then the 1 Corinthians letter is probably the second, second letter. And the 2 Corinthians is probably the fourth. Is probably fourth. And in between them is what Paul calls a severe letter, where he's kind of like, I'm sorry that I had to share this with you, that this letter I had to share with you, it was kind of snarky, you know, or whatever, but it was severe. So there were things he was really desperately trying to correct. So the history that we get on this is that, and, and many Christians don't realize this. So again, why do I share that with you? One is it's just interesting to me, first of all. Second thing is it's also valuable to know these are the letters which we have in the canon, what we call the canon, the authorized, the church has agreed upon, these are those words which God intended for his church and people to have. So those other letters are not there. So we don't know what's in them exactly. We have some hints. We have some ideas. But these you should know, right? So what, is it, what does John say? Many th other things were written which are not recorded in this book. And remember when John is writing that, he's in his 90s. I mean, he's writing at the end. The canon has started to become getting assembled because the Gospels have now been in circulation for 30 years, at least, at the very, at least. Uh, the Gospels have been written by Matthew and, and Mark and, and Luke. John's own Gospel comes out much later there in 90, 95, something like that. So John is saying these things are written. You know, many other things are written. They're not recorded. But these are written that you might believe. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Right, yeah. Bob. Well, you mentioned before how <clears throat> expensive it was to actually commit anything to paper. Was this the sort of thing where each church might have a <coughs> copy that they could read during, you know, services and the like, but it obviously was not each person had their own copy by any means? Yeah, certainly at the beginning, Bob, we know that to be the case. It's so prohibitive. I mean, one of these writings is like a year's salary. You know, it's really, now, I mean, not Philemon, but I mean, you know, uh, 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 if you held in your hands uh, one of the gospel accounts in its entirety, one of the synoptics, and then maybe you also held Romans, I mean, you held some treasures that you held those in your, in your church's hands. But what we do know is that they were shared. They were, they were actually shared amongst churches. They would be walked to another church and read. And then they would record them, but often what they recorded them on might have been, um, would not last. Because to do them on vellum or on papyrus, I mean, this was a process. You didn't just go to the office max and get yourself reams of paper. It was a thing. On the other hand, we also know from the beginning that very wealthy patrons supported the churches. And the church was easily the most diverse uh, element of Roman society. The followers of the way, the Christian church, was easily the most diverse. Um, we, we always, uh, just as a side note, we find it interesting. People always look at us funny 
when we remind them we have the most diverse school other than ISU, but school of our level in Pocatello. No, none of the public schools are actually as diverse as Grace Lutheran School, private Christian school. Isn't that interesting? Because we have so many um, children of ISU professors who are from different countries, different places, we have 18 different faiths represented here at our school. We're about 10% we're about LDS. So, you know, we have, it, it starts to thin out as they get older. Different questions are being asked, right, you know. But it's a great opportunity that we have. Like in our senior class this year, we're going to baptize two of our seniors in the high school. Um, really cool stories. So anyway, that's a cool thing. So amongst that diverse society, you did have people who were actually serving at very high levels, merchants who had real resources. So it would be very unusual to have a full set of Old Testament Torah, you know, um, the Tanakh, right, the, the Torah and the... Nevi'im, the prophets and the writings. It would be very rare for a Christian body to have a full set of that. Even synagogues, save for a decade to be able to get a set of that. Yeah. Even Luther didn't have a Bible. That was in 1500. Right. He had to go to the library where it was chained up in the Wittenberg Library. He did not own a personal Bible. Martin Luther. That's a fascinating story. I mean, he had to write one. It's kind of like in one of his stories, his table talk things, he says, yeah, I had to write one so I could have one. I mean, he translates it into German. And of course, the advent of the printing press made the cost of a Bible, right, go from a year or two's worth of salary to a month's. It was still a very expensive proposition, but it, you, could, you could do it. And of course, in almost every German home, there were a couple of books that were on the shelf. One of them was Luther's New Testament in, in German, which began, Sandra can speak to that. I mean, it's a, a foundational piece still recognized among German, the German nation as a foundational literature piece in the German. German language, because German didn't really exist like that either. Mm -hmm. so yeah. kind of the father of the German speech. Right. So they wanted, every family wanted one of those. So they could, because Luther, again, was huge also on putting the Word of God into the hands of, of families, especially fathers and mothers, to teach their children. So a Bible and a catechism. That was on every shelf in German homes, Lutheran homes. Bible and a catechism. So anyway, um, so yeah, it would be very unusual to have a whole set of things, but they would work hard at having pieces and then they would share. So they would go and read. But anyway, I just find that really interesting because we have hints throughout it. The first letter is lost to us. He just makes kind of a couple of cryptic references to it. But then we get this first one. So if you have this, right? So for instance, the very first letter, like in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, I just wrote some references down. Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. So he's quoting this letter that he wrote that we don't have. He's quoting that. But now, you know, and then also in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it appears that there's a letter that got to Paul. Hey, we need some instruction on some of this stuff. We need some help. And Paul does that. If you look on this sheet, the 1 Corinthians one I gave you, look at in the middle of the page where it says the blueprint. You see that? A little past halfway. Paul addresses the first half of the book, really, or a little less than half. Paul addresses church problems, real specific things, division, sexual immorality, disorder. And then Paul answers church questions. So he's answering questions that were posed to him about marriage, about, like, you know, 
what if I come to faith and my husband's still a pagan? You know, there's things that 1 Corinthians addresses. Um, instruction on Christian freedom and on public worship. Holy Communion is in there, right? Chapter 11. Um, and then the last one, instruction on the resurrection. That's the, that's the culminating, the capstone of that letter is all about our faith dependent upon the resurrection. So we have that lost letter which prompts, you know, so they had written a letter, prompts a letter. It's lost to us, but they, Paul had written to them clearly about something, something was afoot, something was not good in their, in their purity, moral purity. So Paul writes about that, why that matters. And you know, what's interesting is, so often it's like, gosh, Christians, get out of our bedrooms, right? And it isn't, it's an interest, right? Do you understand what I'm saying? In our secular culture, Christians, stop talking about those things. And it really isn't about that. It's that God has designed us as sexual, physical, sexual beings. And that sexual component as the high point of his love and the focus of, high, focus, high point of his creation and focus of his love, God has built into us not merely a reproductive capacity, but in a, a capacity to be able to understand the union of which God himself knows in the Godhead, right? What's the formula for marriage? One plus one equals one, one right? Formula for the Trinity, one plus one plus one equals one, right? Your calculator doesn't work that way. So humans uniquely have the opportunity to discern that. So it's not that we're trying to get into people's bedrooms. God was there all along trying to guide us into a sense of joy and and blessing and fulfillment of God's intentional plan for humanity. So there's great blessing there in, as we follow what, you know, God's guidance on this. So anyway, um, so he writes that letter on that. So that one's lost. Then we get this one. And then um, after 1 Corinthians written, let me see my notes here. Um, in this, then, he, then there's another visit, right? So there's another visit. It's not recorded in Acts. It's predicted in 1 Corinthians 16, and then it's referred back to in 2 Corinthians 13. So, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 16, there's another visit Paul makes to Corinth. So he's visited him once. Remember, he was there by himself? Remember? He was in trouble up north. He was way down to Athens by himself. Well, not by himself. Priscilla and Aquila with him. Priscilla and Aquila in Corinth. But his companion, Silas and those guys, were not with him. He's then in Corinth... And he says in 1 Corinthians 16, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or spend the winter, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I don't want to see you just now in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. Isn't that interesting? The reference of the Jewish harvest festival, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Then in 2 Corinthians 13, this is the third time I am coming to you. See, it's really interesting. So it's like, whoa, Paul actually did make that second visit. Mm -hmm. So this is the third time I am coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warned them now while absent, as I did when present on my second <coughs> visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. I mean, he's going to be stern with them. So that's a second visit. Then you get this severe letter. Paul writes about it, 2 Corinthians 2, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. And then 2 Corinthians 7, just a few chapters later, For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, he's talking about this severe letter, 
I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that that letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. Right? You paid attention for a little bit and were sad and then went back to doing your stupid stuff. Right? That's essentially what he's saying there. Okay? So then, and then finally, there's the letter of uh, 2 Corinthians. So I just, uh, that, this is why we do Bible study, just so you know that. But again, my, my, it's, not, it's not for us to speculate necessarily very hard on what were in those letters, but to know that God intended for these letters we do have, for us to have them and that they speak to the church today just as powerfully as they spoke to the church then. Okay? So, questions on any of that that you're curious about? Yeah, one, one reason that they had so much, the Church of Corinth, I think, had so much problem with moral uh, problems uh, and sexuality. There were, when Paul got there, there were two brothels in Corinth with over a thousand prostitutes each. Wow. Because that was a seaport, actually, where they dragged the boats across the isthmus so they didn't have to go around. So it was really a melting pot, and it was wide open when he got there, and he was literally changing their lifestyle. Right, right. And they kept kind of reverting back, and he kept trying to push him back where he belongs. Yeah, I mean, in, it is the largest, as I've taught you before, it was the largest city in Greece, <coughs> and we could we could uh, affectionately call it Sin City. It was the lost city. Referred to as First Californians. Quarter of a million, First Californians. Yeah. <laughs> careful now, don't take offense to anyone. <laughs> be careful now, there's Hannah, she's a Californian, you're going to be careful. But you escaped. Yeah. <laughs> but she loves to go back and visit. Yeah. And she has relatives still there. So we mean no offense. Right, Bob? What? Bob means no offense. <laughs> we're, we're still trying to witness to that. <laughs> no, it's a, it's a challenge. I, I had talked to several people at this conference I was at where they were really telling me how challenging it is to do school. There were just a whole layers of things. And, and into the culture, speaking into the culture, trying to do their do Lutheran school is a challenge. Increasing challenge. Um, maybe we need that severe letter. Yeah, yeah, maybe. maybe. <laughs> I don't know. It's tricky. What a balance it is. Law and gospel. Yeah. What a balance. I wrestle with it all the time. I mean, Hannah can testify to that. I'm sitting there going, how hard do you go on people? And how gentle do you go? And do we have thin faith? You know, to, I don't know. I don't know the answer. I don't know the answer. But I used to laugh about it because I probably told you guys this, but... I used to, you know, at Christmas and Easter, I, when you get people who show up twice a year, and I would say, you know, we do this every week, uh, you know. Now I see folks and I just say, boy, I'm so glad you're here. And I don't know that I'm right. So I, maybe it's something in between that's really right about how do you challenge people so that you don't come off as if you are affirming their, their choices are fine, no big deal, right? Well, and at the same time, not hammer on people in such a way that is unloving? You know, I don't know. I don't know. Somebody yeah. figures that out, you let me know. <laughs> Tell me how to do it. Okay, so on the First Corinthians page, you can see the things here, the mega themes, and these are significant because these are issues facing the church. This is one of the very first written communications that we have recorded for us. This precedes uh, Romans. Uh, we have Galatians, remember, which is a huge key work on the freedom of a Christian, uh, that it is grace alone which is required to be a Christian, that pagans too, that people that were not Jewish are welcome in the church, and so God has set us free and joined us together in his family. Galatians, that's the earliest of the New Testament writings, precedes the written accounts even of the Gospels, 
And then even this Corinthians, we think we are now starting about 55. We're starting to have full, um, full accounts of the gospel narratives. Most of the gospel narratives first, right? So, so Mark, for instance, is a collection of sermons from Peter. Mark is his secretary, and there's collection of sermons. So we can imagine, just like many books happen, Mark's recording this, and he creates a volume, and he sends it out, you know? And it's Sermon on the Mount. It's, you know, it's this kind of stuff. And then there's another set of sermons. And, you know, and so it's, it's still going to be a little while till all of these codexes, all of these manuscripts are, are then bound together, brought together. It's about 98, hundreds, about 100 A.D. when we really get, we feel pretty confident. But we know there are written accounts of Gospels and other things going around. But this one is telling you what are the issues they're addressing in the early church. And this one, it isn't, like I'll give you an example. In the Northwest District, I always have to tease my district president and our board there. Because when we meet for board of directors, they're always saying things like, in the Synod, in the country, nobody understands us in the Northwest because ministry is so unusual and so difficult and all of that. And I always have to stop them and say, do you think there are no unchurched people in Chicago? Right? I think there are. You know, so please, I get it that in the Northwest, we've been a minority. Christians have been in the minority for, it's now a generation. Right? I mean, it's funny. When I first came out to Portland, the animosity towards the church was not there. I mean, it was, there was a developing counterculture but Willamette Weekly had not yet been invented, you know, published at that point. It was, you know, in New York, the Village Voice from Greenwich Village had been published for a long time. So in Portland, it was not, it took a little while. And even in Seattle, I mean, there was a highly church. I mean, if you don't know this, Ballard, Washington was like 80% Lutheran. It was Norwegian settlers, they're all fishermen. So for generations, that was a, I mean, there was a huge Scandinavian Lutheran presence in Seattle, in Seattle. Our presence was much more in Oregon, in the Portland area. So that's developed over time. So we're not, so Corinth is in the same kind of way. Notice they are like on the front edge of it, and it's a big deal here, but these issues clearly impact the whole church. That's why they make them in the Bible. <laughs> these issues are appearing in other places too. So the first one, he says, is loyalties, right? Hey, who are we loyal to? Who's, there's divisions in the church. A huge issue that's in the church because Christ is the head of the church. It's Paul's emphasis in 1 Corinthians over and over and over. Um, immorality. Um, sexual sin matters in large part because sexual sin identified you with the false gods. That behavior, that sexual practice. So the idea of being faithful to your spouse, not stepping out, um, was unusual in this culture. It was like, why wouldn't you do these things when we have festivals and parties? And why wouldn't you seek the favor of the gods? And here are these Jews and Christians who are saying, no, this is distinct. And so the Jewish law on sexual morality it was not canceled by the life and resurrection, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus never cancels those relationship laws, right? I mean, Jesus has strong words on things like marriage and on um, on the, um, oh, to the to the woman who's caught in adultery, go and sin no more. I mean, there are, 
they're significant. So that he speaks of. The third one down is freedom. You know that Christians have freedom, but you exercise your freedom carefully. Freedom does not therefore equal license. And then the fourth one, worship. How do we worship? In 1 Corinthians, he talks about dress. Like, why does he say women shouldn't have their hair, you know, in a certain way? Because, again, it associated itself with temple prostitutes and those who were working in those businesses. So you're distinct. So you didn't advertise that you were available in the Christian church uh, if you were single. You didn't... You know, you were careful and cautious about those things. Why in this practice of communion does he say what he's saying? Because what had happened was in this very diverse church with all classes of society represented, the wealthy had decided, hey, we're tired of letting the poor people have all this food. We're going to eat first, and then they can have some at the Lord's Supper if they want some. And Paul is unhappy, shall we say. He's as unhappy as a person can be. Um, in fact, his instruction in the Lord's Supper is, is really intriguing in which he says, what you're calling the Lord's Supper ain't the Lord's Supper. That is not what you got. Okay, so anyway, so he talks about it in worship. And then, of course, the capstone one on resurrection. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins, and we are among those that are most highly to be pitied. In fact, I love Paul's line where he says, if, in fact, we only uh, preached, um, how does he say it, for this life, that Christ has died for this life, then we are, we are lost. It's for eternal life that Christ died and rose again. So anyway, those are the key things in, in 1 Corinthians. Look down at the bottom. I thought this was a neat little feature of these things that I found. Highlights of 1 Corinthians, the meaning of the cross. 1 Corinthians has that fabulous statement by Paul about its foolishness to Greeks and a scandal to the Jews, or I probably have that backwards, but you know, it's, a, it's an offense to one and stupid to the other. It doesn't make any sense. Very powerful words, but for us, we see the glory of God in the cross. We preach Christ and Him crucified. When I came among you, I chose to know nothing except that. Christ crucified. Then the story of the Last Supper in 1 Corinthians 11. If you look at that, that those are our words of institution. So our words of institution at the Lord's Supper, which are the same in all of our worship services, right? Whether it's non-traditional or traditional, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, after he had given thanks, he broke it, gave it to them, and said, those are straight out of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So our words of institution come out of when Paul says, what I received, I pass to you. So what, in other words, what the apostles had taught him about the institution of the Lord's Supper I have passed on to you, and that's how we get those words. That should give you that should give you a kind of a thrill to think that every time we say those words, we are saying them right along with all those believers who preceded us in that church in Corinth and in Antioch and Jerusalem. And Jesus. And Jesus, who said them to us. Yeah. It's interesting because Paul kind of um, conflates all of the gospel ones together. That's how it looks like the church did it. Because Matthew's a little different than Mark and, and Luke. They're all a little different. John doesn't have it, right? John has the foot washing. And so those three synoptic gospels all are a little different. Like, for instance, Matthew is the one that says, for the forgiveness of sins. That's the one. And I think it's <coughs> Luke that says, this is my blood of the new covenant, right? So it's a new promise. So they're all a little different. And then Paul, it appears that the church, in its practice, then 
put those together, all those words of Christ, and put them together. So, all right, that's that. Any questions on 1 Corinthians? So he's writing that then from Ephesus, writes that, and those issues we still, we still uh, continue to work on in the church. Then he heads north. He's in Macedonia. So he's making his way. He's up here in Macedonia, about 55. It's just months later. So clearly some more word. So either one of two things has happened to Paul. Either he goes, oh, I forgot to write about that. You know, there's things I should have said that I just didn't write. I wrote the other hastily uh, because I was responding to a letter and questions. I got more I need to say. Or he got an additional communication from someone who said, hey, they got your letter and they're not very happy about it. Or they got your letter and they have these additional questions about it. So Paul, as he's traveling, writes 2 Corinthians. If you look at the mega themes on the, on the page on 2 Corinthians, do you have that one? What's interesting here, I mean, Paul is simply sharing, hey, you're going through trials, I am too. But church discipline is a significant thing. There is a way to do discipline in the church. Now, let me just share this with you because this is an awkward statement, especially for Americans. Do you, now, and this is weird for me to talk about it too because I'm your pastor. But the question comes, do you have someone under which you have come under their spiritual authority in your life? Now, many Americans and Protestant Christians say, yes, yeah, Jesus, Right? But that's not, how the, that's not how Scripture speaks of it. That's not how 1st 2nd Corinthians talks about it. It talks about coming, like for instance, I have someone, Paul Linnemanus, someone who I come under spiritual, I have called him, I've confessed things, I have asked for grace and forgiveness. He's my supervisor. So when I come to him, he's my spiritual father. Martin Luther had, remember who he was? Um, it was, uh, uh, oh, not Carl Stott. That's not right. It's his father confessor. He, he, he continued to come to him throughout his life, as long as he lived. Um, John von Staupitz. Um, and he remained Catholic. He was the head of the Augustinian order. And for about another five years after, after the Reformation, Luther continued to seek him out. Paul talks about that here. How is discipline done in the church? In other words, are we all free agents? Because it's really kind of nice to say, well, I only am under the authority of Jesus Christ. Okay, fine. That sounds a little bit like a cop-out. Because he's probably not coming to you and saying, hey, you know, this needs to correct. Or something like that. And that's, isn't that awkward in our culture today? Who has the ability to come into your life and do correction? I, by the way, I, you know I don't, I'm not, I don't exercise that. Like I'm, I have at times. It's not. It's wife, about my. It? Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know when they said at this conference, it's great. Yeah, I heard the voice of God. It sounds eerily like my wife's. <laughs> yeah. Or another guy said, "Yeah, I think God is a five foot two blonde." <laughs> so, um, but it's interesting because who does speak with authority? Who gets to do correction? Now, sometimes God's Word does it for us. If we're faithful in it, we're humble in it. And to be honest, sometimes a sermon can do it. You know, like I, I, I laughed about this with the staff. I said, boy, I might have been a little too snarky a couple weeks ago. Because at 11, I, I had a long sermon, didn't I? It was like 32 minutes. That's a long time for a Lutheran. Um, and I said, and I, I almost said to Teresa later, I said, oh, maybe I shouldn't have said that. 
Because I said, this should have been three sermons, but I can't get you guys to come three weeks in a row. So I got to do it in one. Yes, and, you did say that. And I did. And I'm, and I, because, and, and to be honest, it's very, very hard to do sermon series anymore. Where you say, hey, you should come for these Ten Commandments. We're going to do a series on Ten Commandments. And you get two, five, seven, and nine. You know, I mean, it, that doesn't quite work. You know, unless you'll faithfully go watch the sermons, you know, online. Catch up, take notes, pray, be prepared. You know, so it's tricky. So how do you do correction? Some of it we think does come in sermons. Because we do talk about, here's how we've blown it. Right? And I, I, I do believe this. When I'm listening to a sermon, if you don't make me squirm a little bit, you didn't give me enough law. Right? If I'm comfortable through the whole thing, I need a little squirming. I need you to kind of hit me between the eyes. And that's I, and when I talk to young pastors, because I know this to be true, preaching gospel is easy. Preaching law is hard. I mean, it's, it's easy to bash on people or to say law so lightly that no one cares. It's really hard to preach law where someone says, I'm squirming, but I know you're going to give me something good here in a minute. Right? I know you will. So, anyway, sorry. That's, but that's what Paul is wrestling with here, too. How do I speak to the church? Because think about a letter. Letters are hard. I can't sit there to watch your body language. I can't sit there to explain and put in context exactly what I mean. Letters are hard. Emails, careful, careful before you hit send. Right? Really careful. I am so thankful that I make my staff read stuff that I write <laughs> before it goes out. Because every once in a while I'm in a poor mood. And I, it's, and they're gracious in, in correcting me. But Paul, this is the blessing that we have these. So church discipline. And then giving. This is cool in this, session, in this letter. If you're not familiar with that and you want some good instruction on generosity and stewardship. Because here's the context. <coughs> During this time... There was a famine. Really, it was a prophesied worldwide famine. And it really impacted the saints in Jerusalem. It was impacting the whole Roman Empire, some areas worse than others. And it appears that these series of planted churches were affected somewhat less than these churches that were down here in Alexandria and Jerusalem in Palestine. And so Paul, as part of a church-wide effort, says, we need to bless our brothers and sisters here in Jerusalem. We need to bless them. Let's, get, let's do an offering and do that. So this is why, for instance, we didn't ask for a lot of permission. We said, hey, there's hungry people in Pocatello. We're going to pack, pack meals, and we're going to ask you to contribute to it. If you do, you do. If you don't, you don't. But we're going to do it. And so that's what Paul does. We're going to bless these people, and he goes around collecting the offering. Right? So he does a beautiful job. You reap what you sow. Right? God loves a cheerful giver. And I've used those principles over and over. And many, many preachers and uh, teachers have over the generations. Like I've told you, if any of you remember this, if you hate giving or you're begrudging in giving, don't do it. Please stop. Don't write the check. Only do it if you go, thank you, Lord. What a blessing. You've blessed me, and I have the opportunity to return that with thanksgiving. God loves a cheerful giver, right? So anyway, that's all. That's in that passage. A lot of stuff on giving. And then, of course, he's speaking about false teachers. Now, third thing. Let's go on a little bit. Let's turn the page here and go to Romans. Because now, so here's how Paul goes. Third missionary journey, right? Here we are. He's in Ephesus. He took off this way. 
writes another letter here from Macedonia, and then proceeds on. Athens, you know, is up here, and proceeds on down to Corinth. And while he's in Corinth, I'm pretty sure it's three months that he's there. In his three months there, because Paul had a longing to go to Rome. He, does, he get, makes it there, but he's in chains. So that's how he makes it to Rome. He's arrested and makes it to Rome. But he has a longing to go to Rome. Clearly, uh, Priscilla and Aquila, who were from Rome, and had been, uh, they had been expelled along with the other Jews uh, when Claudia was emperor. Um, Paul uh, uh, was told by them what the community of faith was and the trials they were facing. And Paul had an eager desire to get to Rome. So he writes this letter to the Romans at that point. And it, we sh this is one in which you take a whole year to study the book of Romans. We did it several years ago. Rod's done it. Um, where we spent the whole school year just walking through the book of Romans. Romans is the doctrine book of the New Testament. Um, in fact, we laugh about this in seminary. Most seminarians love their first thing they love to preach on is Paul's letters. Because Paul does all the work for you in preaching. You just kind of have to repeat what he says. Because Paul does the doctrine work. Jesus often will tell a parable, and then you're required to extrapolate out of there. What does he mean? Get right? The disciples ask him all the time, hey, what did you mean by that? And you know, every once in a while he goes, what are you guys, idiots? You know, you guys are so stupid. And then he explains it to him, parable of the sower, you know, unmerciful servant, things like that. Um, and so, and, and the Old Testament often is even harder yet. Because you're trying to preach a, a, a sermon which has a lot of grace in it, which, in which the grace is often implied. It's implicit instead of explicit. So what you get is implicit grace in the Old Testament, explicit grace in the Gospels, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. And then you have doctrine in Paul's letters. So it's anyway, so Romans is a doctrine one. Paul very carefully and very systematically lays out the condition of humanity historically throughout from the beginning, from Adam and Eve. He, he lays out the whole uh, condition of man, how God intervened, what God's intention was for humanity, how would God reconcile us to himself, how the law is insufficient to do it, and so forth and so on. He just works through the, the whole thing in the doctrine book. So if you're looking at the Romans one, here are the megathemes, right? sin and salvation. This is why Lutherans, and we are unapologetic about it, but it helps you understand things. We often, and, and I don't know that this is good or bad or whatever, we quote Paul more than anyone. We just do. Because Paul is a guy who is so clear on law and gospel, the authority of scripture, grace alone, um, the means of grace, all of those things. So sin and salvation are, are, are just completely there. And then, of course, in this one, this is from the Life Application Bible, sovereignty. If you want to write a note on there, we would just say the, the, the um, this is first article. You could write that. So first article of the creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty. Okay. So certain traditions love to use the word God is sovereign. I'm just, go through your mind. Have you ever heard us use that phrase, probably in public worship? It's not wrong. It's absolutely correct. Do you know who likes to use that word a lot? Do you know, Stefan? Mm -hmm. yeah. Your buddies. Yeah. Right? So a Calvinist tradition, 
Like if you like the New Geneva, oh, very conservative kind of Calvinist church in Idaho Falls, they love this term, right? God is in control, sovereignty of God. That's how you get things like predestination, right? Because God is in control. You're just kind of on for the ride, right? He's He's doing things. We don't. We're not. We don't love that. We know God is in control, but we find that God still allows it to be messy, right? God still allows for us, even redeemed sinners, to sometimes stumble and then walk and then heal and then hurt, right? I'm preaching about that today. That's, that's a significant piece of, of the journey that we're on together. Oh, goodness. I got pretty far today, actually. Um, so, um, so anyway, so the Romans one is so significant for us. But he does talk about the sovereignty of God. But it becomes important when Paul talks about who is Israel. So Romans also gives us some tremendous insight, and Galatians does as well, and some others, Colossians, on who is Israel. That becomes the question. Is Israel the collection of ethnic Jews, some saved, some who know Jesus as Messiah, others who do not, is that Israel? Is it defined by ethnicity or national boundaries? Or is Israel defined by, as Paul will say, the Israel of God? Which is it? And so when he talks about it in Romans, it has caused real debate among Christians, particularly Protestants, on who, in fact, is Israel and how will God do it. In other words, in the sovereignty of God, will he simply make all Jews saved at the end? Some people seem to say something very close to that. Others will say, no, uh, Israel is defined by those who have put their trust in the Messiah. Or in the promise of the Messiah. So anyway, so that is in Romans as well. So anyway, it's about what to believe and then how to behave. So Paul doesn't simply make it doctrine. It's also doctrine in practice is the book of Romans. Okay, we did make it a ways here. So now the next thing we're going to see is the conclusion of the third missionary journey. And then we're going to get Paul's trip to Rome. And Paul does a bunch of writing in Rome. Right? Prison letters. So there's a bunch of writing and it's very instructive because his circumstances stink, and yet he gives us words of great, great hope in the midst of that trial. Okay, let's say the blessing. I'll let you know. The Lord bless us and keep us. The Lord make his face shine upon us and be gracious unto us. The Lord lift up his countenance upon us and give us peace. Amen. Thanks all. Hey everyone, our third installment of our monthly Red Letter Challenge review is coming up March 6th and 7th. We will be packing meals for the Meals of Hope Company, which is a company that comes into our facility and helps us to pack meals that can be donated to our local food bank. If you're curious about this and wish to serve in any way or donate, um, please contact Ryan Stralo at the church office. One meal is only 25 cents.